Well, on Friday, I got a, a news feed that came my way, and it was very, very fascinating. It caught my attention, and I read the whole article. And here was the news feed that came in on Friday. Thin Air Flight 666 flew to hell on Friday the 13th. Did you see that one? Right there on my news feed. Now, with all the fake news going on, I thought, okay, well, this is something kind of silly. But you look into it, and that's an actual statement of fact. This last Friday, Thin Air flew a, a flight from Copenhagen to Helsinki, and the Helsinki Air Airport is H-E-L, and it was on Friday the 13th, and it is flight number 666. And so people had some fun with it, and uh, just kind of hit, hit Facebook and all the social media, and Twitter, of course, went uh, crazy. So somebody tweeted, um, you know, was it carrying also um, black cats and broken mirrors in the cargo hold? Uh, somebody tweeted this, who in their right mind would be on that flight, right? Now, let's stop and think about that. Who in their right mind would be on a flight that is riddled with superstition? We don't really use our minds when it comes to superstition. Those are two different things. We have two categories of life here. One is the life of our brain, and one is the life of this sort of mystical spiritual world. And virtually everybody lives comfortably or uncomfortably in those two realms. There's the physical, tangible world that I know and can get my head around, and then there's this spiritual, mystical world that's sort of a mystery. But we, we dabble in those mysteries, and, and uh, this is sort of the common way of life for the vast majority of people. In fact, in the United States of America, where we are arguably a, a very reasoned and educated community and culture, 25% of Americans believe in common superstitions, 25% of Americans. Now, we are reasonable people, but 25% of us actually believe that the number 13 is unlucky. Now, on its face, that's not reasonable. But in our soul, it's like, well, you never know, right? 40% of Americans believe in some mystical mind power, like, like mind over matter or extrasensory perception. Reasoned Americans, 40% of us believe that there's some kind of mind mental power over matter. Now, it's not particularly reasonable, but there's something within us that says, hey, you never know. Now, to go a couple of steps forward, 85 to 90% of Americans believe in a divine being, God, or a God. 85 to 90%. Now, we can sort of categorize all of these things. We can, we can categorize the, the mystical and superstition all in with this mind over matter stuff and all in with believing God and just sort of lump it together as the spiritual, mystical part of life. And then we can say, okay, well, the physical part of life is the reasonable part and the spiritual part. Well, you know, you just kind of dabble with things, and sometimes you believe things that aren't reasonable. But somewhere along the line, even in the mystical category, there is some reasonability in the mystical categories or spiritual categories or matters of faith, right? For example, believing in God. I have a neighbor that does not believe in God. This may not come as a shock to you, but I actually do believe that there is a God, right? Now, uh, we have a, a nice back and forth, and, and we can trade ideas, and we've spent many, many hours dialoguing about these ideas. Now, his idea, based on his experience and based on a, a reasonable thread in his own mind, there is no God because how could a good God allow such bad things to happen? He has had many negative experiences in the church or among people who believe in God, a subject we'll talk about next week, and so he's come to his own conclusion. Now, I respect his conclusion. I don't happen to agree with it, but I respect his conclusion. I respect the train of thought, and I respect his experiences, and so I respect the conclusion he's come up to. Now, I'm trying to, to lead him and guide him. Now, he's also respecting my conclusion. 
I cannot get my head around the idea that time, matter, space, and energy can self-generate from nothing. I cannot get my head around that, right? And so I always go back to that first cause. You take cause and effect all the way back. Is there an infinite chain of cause and effect? Well, infinite is a theory. It's not really real if you talk historically. There's a lot of philosophy around that. So there has to be a first cause. There has to be a starting point. And that means there has to be a cause or. There has to be a first cause who is God himself. So, that, so reasonability can leak into matters of faith where we have enough to believe that these spiritual things that we cannot see, that we cannot test are actually real and true and I can place my life uh, in, in those truths. And so even though there are matters of faith and spirituality, there is reasonability in there as well. And so despite the fact that there's a common belief that God must exist, there is in our community, in our culture, in the United States of America, an ever-widening rift between the church and mainstream American culture. And this is what we're talking about during the month of January is so many people have left the church and we're giving this invitation, hey, we'll give it one more try because here at Rancho in January, we're addressing how the church perhaps has contributed to this rift unnecessarily and how we can do some self-examination and say, okay, there's a lot of great things about the church, but there are some things that we can improve. I'm talking about the church in America. There are some things that we can do to improve. Now, in our information-driven culture, the church, I believe, has needlessly contributed to this rift by holding tightly, now get this, we hold tightly to outmoded interpretations of the Bible despite clear scientific evidence on the contrary. And the church has a history of doing this, a 2,000-year history of doing this. The church tends to confuse our interpretations of the Bible with what the Bible says. And then we hold on to our interpretations despite the fact that the entire scientific community has discovered truths that call into question our interpretation of the Bible. And, and if we continue to do that, and I believe in many respects we still are, if we continue to do that, we are gonna be increasingly irrelevant and we are going to add to the rift between the church and the American culture. And our American culture has no problem with believing in God. Our American culture actually has no problem with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a 92% approval rating. It doesn't get any higher than that, right? The American culture has no problem with God and no problem with Jesus. What do they have a problem with? The church. In some respects, because we hold on tightly to our interpretation of the Bible despite what science is concluding to the contrary. It's something to take a look at. I'm going to give you two examples. They're both fairly famous examples. The first one is based on a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 22. It says this, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, this might seem like very common biblical language, but there's a lot there. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, this was written several hundred years before Christ, so let's just uh, say for the sake of round numbers, it's about a 2,500-year-old writing. And now, I believe it was inspired by God. That writing, that verse was inspired by God. But it was written from human authors who wrote in common ancient language about their understanding of the earth and the cosmos. And so they use very common ancient language to describe the earth around them. And so um, now, if, if you were... Uh, living 2,500 years ago, and uh, let's say you uh, stood on top of a bucket and looked around at the horizon line. If you looked at the horizon line, what would you notice? All around you, the horizon is in the shape of what? A circle. 
And again, in the ancient mindset, they don't have satellite images 2,500 years ago. You would come up with certain conclusions that the earth must be flat like this plate. Because if you're standing on a bucket, all you see is a circle of a horizon around you. And so this is your obvious conclusion. It's absolutely obvious. Now you look up and you see what appears to be a dome. And so there's a word that ancient civilizations came up with to talk about that dome where the stars are and the sun and the moon, and it's called firmament. And firmament is the bowl that sits on top of the circle of the earth, and that firmament is where the stars are scattered and move around and the moon and the sun. They just kind of cruise around this bowl. But then every once in a while, water comes from the sky from who knows where, where, where must that water be stored? Above the firmament. So the ancient world thought that there was water above this bowl. And every once in a while, that firmament would be pierced and water would come down in the form of clouds and rain and snow. And then it would go back up above the firmament where it was stored. Where else would water come from? Falling from the sky. Now, where does God live? Well, he doesn't live on our earth, doesn't live in our firmament, doesn't live in the waters. He must reside above the waters that reside above the firmament, which resides above the circle of the earth. Now, that whole description of ancient cosmology, if you have read your Bible, well, there's a lot of that language in the Bible, and there is, because the Bible was written from the point of view of the authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who were writing those passages from their point of view. Now, keep in mind, the Bible is about God and his relationship with us. The intent of the Bible was not written to correct the cosmology of the ancient world. Is that a fair statement? It's a fair statement. So if we can get our heads and our hands around that, I think we will have a little clearer perspective of God's word and a clearer understanding of nature and God's invitation for us to study nature, to study science. Now, right around the time of Christ, just before the time of Christ, uh, the Greeks were very interested in cosmology. They were very interested in study. And so based on their more detailed study of the way things were, they suspected the earth might not be a flat circle, but the earth might in fact be a sphere. And so this theory was being bannered around in Greek times uh, and during the time of Christ. And in the early church, this theory was really taking root in civilizations all over the world, that the earth might in fact be a sphere. Now, the church didn't like that. The early church didn't like that because they were looking at Isaiah 40, 22, and they're saying, no, the Bible says circle of the earth. Therefore, we refuse to believe that the earth is a sphere. Now, my favorite church father, this is St. Augustine. He is my favorite church father. He's always listed among the top four church fathers, an amazing man of God. He wrote amazing things to shape the church, uh, things that we still hold to today. He was the one to formalize in many ways. He did not like the idea that the earth was a sphere. Here's what he wrote and preached about this idea. He says, now imagine him pounding his pulpit and kind of mocking the whole idea that the world is in fact a sphere. He says, there's a fable out there of men on the opposite side of the earth. And the whole church would laugh. <laughs> How could that possibly be? It's ridiculous. Where the sun rises and sets as it does to us. In other words, you know, the sun goes around this sphere and everybody's laughing. Oh, it's ridiculous. Men who walk with their feet opposite ours, that is on no ground credible. In fact, he called it, quote, uh, scientific conjecture, right? He goes on to say this. He points now to the Bible. For scripture, which proves the truth of its historical statements by the accomplishments of its prophecy, gives no false information, and this idea of a spherical earth is too absurd to 
even say. Now, that's the hard-line position of many in the early church. Now, 800 years later, the church finally relented and said, okay, the earth is a sphere. And everybody all over the world is going, well, you're kind of late to that party, right? But we come along kind of late. Why? Because we hold on very tightly to our interpretation of what we think the Bible is teaching. But sometimes we're wrong. Now, there are people who ask the question, well, does this call into question the credibility of the Bible? We believe God, the Bible is God's word, accurate God's word. Well, yes, absolutely. The Bible expresses the truth about God and his relationship with us. But the Bible was written in a language and written with a cosmology of the time it was written. The authors of the Bible 2,500 years ago are not going to write from the perspective of 21st century Americans. Is that safe to say? And if they did write from the perspective of 21st century Americans, 2,500 years from now, don't you think it might be different? 25 days from now it might be different with the way information is coming down now, right? So let's just kind of relax about the context and language of the Bible. It is absolutely God's word written to express who God is in his relationship with us. Now I'm gonna give you a, a similar example. Um, I was curious yesterday, in my curiosity, I'm thinking, okay, well, what time will the sun rise on Sunday morning? You know, I got to know these things. And, uh, and so I took a little a screenshot of my phone from the Storm app. Get the Storm app. It's an awesome weather app. If you don't have Storm app, you are on the outside looking in. Uh, unpaid commercial solicitation. So I, I did, a, uh, uh, I did a, a, a screenshot of the Storm app, and it says right there, the sun will rise at 6.52 a.m., now, I'm very familiar with the storm app, and I trust, based on past experience, that meteorologists from all over the world are pouring their information into these supercomputers, and they are pumping out all this information about weather and charts and radar and Doppler and all that stuff, and I am pretty sure they know when the sun rises, right? Pretty sure they got that down. Can I trust that the sun rose at 6.52 a.m. this morning? Can I trust that? It is a trick question. Yes, I can trust that. But the reality is that it's absolutely false and absolutely ludicrous. Why? The sun didn't rise. The earth actually rotated to reveal the sun. Yet we still talk about the sun rising and the sun setting. Well, the sun isn't moving. The earth is rotating to reveal the sun or to hide the sun. So this is factually incorrect and absurd. Well, you know, relax. It's just what we say. Geez, you know, take it easy. Well, that's exactly right. And sometimes the Bible just uses common language of the ancient time based on their common understanding. So let's relax a little bit, right? If it's not technically, scientifically correct, it's not the end of the world. Just as if I said the sun rose this morning. It's not absolutely scientifically correct. It's just called vernacular. It's called how we describe things from our point of view. It is okay. We can relax about that. We can relax about it. Here's a, a second a more famous example of how the church got their interpretations wrong by holding on tightly to what they thought the Bible said. It's actually the Copernicus and Galileo problem. And this is so famous, the church will be punished for this scourge on our history for 10,000 years, I guarantee, right? Uh, it, it, it was a rough one. Uh, the Catholic Church at the time looked at God's word and, uh, and they had a certain conclusion about cosmology. They had finally admitted that the world was a sphere, but then something else came up. Copernicus wrote a book called On the Revolutions of Heavenly Bodies, and Copernicus kind of wimped out. He wrote a book that said the, the earth um, or the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, but in fact, the earth revolves around the sun. This was more ludicrous than the idea of the earth being a sphere. 
Because from our point of view, the sun is doing the moving and we're standing perfectly still. And Copernicus said, no, it's actually the other way around. The earth is rotating around the sun. Now, he wimped out by not publishing that book until he was on his deathbed because he knew he'd get in trouble. And so he waited until he was on his deathbed, published the book, and gone. And sure enough, right to the expectations, the Catholic Church rejected it, deemed it heresy, and enough with Copernicus. A little bit later, Galileo looked at the Copernican studies, did his own studies, his own research, and he said, he's right. And the evidence was mounting. And so Galileo wrote a book called Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. He was a little more courageous, and he published the thing, and then moved away from Rome, because <laughs> he knew he'd get in trouble. Well, Rome said, hey, uh, Galileo, uh, we need you to come over to Rome. I have some questions for you. Well, he knew the Inquisition was going on. And the Inquisition was not nice, right? He knew the techniques of the Inquisition, which include extraordinary torture. And he said, I'd rather not go to Rome. Is that okay? I'm sick. You know? <laughs> and he got away with that for a little while. And, um, and the Catholic Church finally insisted, you will come to Rome or we'll, go, or we'll get you. He went to Rome. He was uh, under the Inquisition for an eight-month trial. Seven of the ten inquisitors deemed him guilty of heresy. He was deemed a heretic. His book was banished, put on the blacklist, and he was put under house arrest. Uh, later, they gave him some mercy and allowed him to uh, finish out the remainder of his elderly days at a family farm. But um, he was convicted of heresy, and he was basically blacklisted, he and his work. Now, why? Well, because there was a verse in the Scripture, and there's a couple of them like it. Ecclesiastes 1.5 says this, The sun rises and the sun sets, and the sun hurries back to where it rises. Now, you look at that, and by the way, it's in the, in the context of a poem, poetry book, um, but it talks about the sun doing the moving. It doesn't say the earth is moving around. It says the sun is moving around. So the Catholic Church said, we cannot compromise biblical truth. The sun is doing the moving. You are a heretic, Copernicus. You're a heretic, Galileo. It wasn't until 1820 that the Catholic Church finally admitted that, in fact, the earth revolves around the sun. What would happen if the church continued to insist the world was flat? What would happen to the church? One word, dead. What would happen to the church if we continued to insist that the sun revolves around the earth? Dead, right? Sometimes the study of nature informs our interpretation of the Bible. And I think we need to be okay with that. There's a cliche around there, and I think it's a decent cliche, that all truth is God's truth, right? Whether it comes from the Bible or whether it comes from our study of nature or the way things are, all truth is God's truth, right? Truth is, is the quest. We want to seek God and the truth of who God is. And we find that certainly through his word, but we find that certainly through his creation as well. I believe we're at the tail end of a third major disconnect between Christianity and the scientific community. And this is over the age of the universe, the age of the earth, and the origin of life and the nature of life. And this has been a debate that has been raging ever since uh, Darwin published The Origin of Species. And the church is trying to figure out how do we get our heads around this thing. And, and then you have in the 1990s, the Hubble telescope just dumping data into the scientific community and radically transforming our view of the universe, of the entire cosmos. And again, the church is, is just fumbling around trying to figure out what do we do with this information? Because what does the Bible say? Well, here is um, Exodus 20, uh, embedded in the Ten Commandments, quoting Genesis chapter 1. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. That's what the Bible says. And so just like the Isaiah passage and just like the Ecclesiastics passage, many in the church have said, this is what the Bible says. So my interpretation of the Bible is six days means six days. But then we have all this information flooding into the scientific community and coming up with with conclusions and theories that seem to make a lot of reasonable sense. And and some in in the church have really had a problem with this, so much so that some in the church have said, well, the scientific community is engaged in a conspiracy theory, a collective conspiracy theory specifically to discredit the Bible in the Christian church. It's gotten tense. Now, I do think we're on the tail end of that battle. I think that uh, battle was really at its peak in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, But since then, there have been uh, several uh, positions, several convictions that have arisen in terms of this debate. And they fall into two camps, a literalistic camp and an allegorical camp. And so I'm going to go through them. There are seven of them. I'll go through them real quick. And and I just want to say this as a a little um, introduction to this section here. Every one of these seven theories or conclusions or convictions are welcome at Rancho. I know there are people at Rancho that that have uh, any number of these seven convictions. I'll tell you, our own staff, our own ministry staff have, has various convictions on this. So, so we're really all fine. So there's no need to get tense or weird. We're all fine. Here is uh, some literalistic stances on creationism. Uh, first of all, there is the literal uh, six 24-hour days. And the conclusion is, hey, God says he created it in six days, and that's, that's good enough for me. And uh, some of these folks will point to Usher's timeline. Archbishop Usher came up with a timeline based on biblical genealogies, and he says that the universe was created by God in 4004 B.C. And a lot of the Christian church, particularly conservative evangelical Christian church, said, hey, that sounds about right. It sounds credible to me. So let's call the, the universe, all the cosmos, 6,000 years old. Now, there's a lot of people in our church that hold to that position. It's a a position uh, that has been very popular, especially over the last 60 years. And and I respect people who hold that position. And I particularly respect people who hold that position who say, you know what? Uh, Perhaps God created the the cosmos 6,000 years ago with the appearance of age. In other words, if God said, hey, Adam, boom, here you are. And he just created Adam, and, and the word is ex nihilo. In other words, created Adam from nothing. Adam wouldn't look like a one-second-year-old. He might look like a 30-year-old. And so if God creates something, for example, when Jesus created bread and fish, uh, he didn't create one-celled fish that were one second old. He created whole fish that looked like they might be a year old, right? So it could very well be that as God creates, he creates with the appearance of age. And so the the young earth position, uh, I think, is more respectable when young earth folks say, hey, listen, it's very possible that God created the universe with the appearance of age, including light coming from distant stars that could be 12 billion uh, light years away. That makes that light beam 12 billion years old. Well, God could have placed that light beam there 6,000 years ago with the appearance that is 12 billion years old. That, that makes it more respectable to at least not accuse the entire scientific community uh, of fabricating uh, all of this evidence of an old cosmos. Uh, this is the only one of the seven uh, theories or positions about creationism that takes it as a young earth. The others are old earth. There's gap creationism. Gap creationism said God created the first day, the heavens and the earth. Then the earth was formless and void. And gap creationists would say that formless and void are the 13, 14 billion years of the universe, the cosmos kind of settling down. And then God gets to literal 24-hour creation days in days two through six. 
That's gap creationism. There is the day-age theory. Uh, the word for day in Hebrew in Genesis um, 1 and Exodus 20 is yom, yom. And the Hebrew word for day is the same as we use it. We can say day to mean 24 hours, but we can also use the word day to mean long eras of time. And so the day-age people say, hey, we believe literally in six days, but those days could be millions or billions of years old. Um, six era. So those are the literalistic creationistic, um, creationist uh, perspective. Then there are allegorical creationists. Allegorical creationists first believe largely that Genesis 1 is poetry. Poetry. Now, if Genesis 1 is a poem, which most scholars, the vast majority of scholars hold to this position, that Genesis 1 is a poem, we don't have to take anything in there, uh, particularly literally. Uh, if you wrote me a glowing poem because uh, you are uh, just very grateful that I'm your pastor, I don't have to take any parts of it, you know, literally, right? It's just a, a poem that contains a message, right? It contains a message, and I want to get to the heart of the message. Now, if you have a paper Bible on you, not many people do here at Encore, but if you have a paper Bible on you, you might notice that the first chapter of Genesis is reverse indented. And the vast, vast, vast majority of the Bible has Genesis 1 as reverse indented, meaning the translators took it as poetry. So it is a perfectly acceptable Christian point of view, and actually the majority view historically. There's a version of the allegorical creationism that talks about a poetic framework. Now, I love this, um, I love this position. If you look at the framework of Genesis 1, you will see Genesis 1, 2, and 3 talks about God creating the open space or the vast space of the heavens, the vast space of the sky, vast space of the sea, vast space of land. And then in, in um, days 4, 5, and 6, God populates or fills the vast space in the exact same order. Day 4, he fills day 1. Day 5, he fills day 2. Day 6, he fills day 3. So it's a beautifully constructed poem that's articulating a new truth about God, that God is involved in both the macro, big level, and the very small details. In other words, God is personal and willful and volitional and is intimately creating both the large and the small. It's a beautifully constructed poem with a beautifully constructed framework. There's also progressive creationism. Progressive creationism uh, is fine with old earth, has no problem with that, but what they struggle with is particularly two things, that life can come from non-life, and that's something to consider, that's a difficult one, or cross-special evolution. And so progressive creationist says, hey, every once in a while in this you know, 13, 14 billion year history of the cosmos, God will step in and miraculously or supernaturally you know, move his creation forward, like, okay, here's life, and just creates life. Or here's a new species, here's man, made in my image. It's a unique ex nihilo from nothing creation, right? And that's progressive creationism. And then there is a view that is really taken off these days. It is theistic evolution. Now, this uses the dreaded E word. And especially in conservative evangelical realms, the E word is, is very difficult. And there are some good reasons for that. It's fairly scary for conservative uh, evangelicals to get a hold of because there's been such a, an evolutionary battle over the last hundred years. And so it's just difficult. It's difficult emotionally. It's difficult even scientifically to kind of get our heads around life becoming more complex uh, as it goes. It, there's just some difficulty with that. But lately, this is really uh, taking off. And one of the proponents of this is Francis Collins. And Francis Collins is one of the most well-respected scientists in America. 
Uh, he was the lead of the Human Genome Project. When DNA was, was starting to become not only just a, a matter of discovery, but really looking at the genetic codes and, and, and how each genetic uh, code is sort of this incredible puzzle, this formula that dictates who we are and diseases and, and how we can really help people based on, on genetic uh, study. So he led the Human Genome Project. It was one of the national uh, highlight projects, international highlight projects. He was the lead. He was also the head of the, um, uh, of the National Institute on Health and Sciences. He is, he is like one of the top dogs scientifically in America. Now, he's also a very faithful, devoted follower of Jesus Christ and leader in his church. He loves the Lord and respects his Bible, believes in his Bible, believes in the gospel, right? It's a, he's an incredible man. I've read, I've read his books. So he believes that evolution is the mechanism that God used to usher in his creation. And that is a point of view that is, is really taken off. Now, there are those seven views of creation. Three are literal, four are allegorical, and that is part of the diversity of the Christian church. Any one of those positions is just fine with us here at Rancho. There's no problem with that. Just hold those convictions with humility. But the problem with the church, and I would say, just to be really honest and blunt with you guys here, that the problem with the church has been sometimes the conservative evangelical young earth group who has said things that are just not gracious and not humble. And I have heard versions of this. Now, keep in mind, I'm a child of the 80s, right? I am a child of the 80s, heavy metal, the whole thing, right? And, and part of that is being a part of youth groups where we were taught multiple times this. If you don't believe in a literal six-day creation and young earth, you don't really believe the Bible. And I'm looking around and all of you 40-sums are going, yeah, I heard that. I heard that. And some of this is based on fear. You know, there's all this new data just pouring into the scientific community, and the Christian world just did not know what to do with all that data. And so we get defensive, sort of like a, uh, you know, a rattlesnake in a corner. It's like we're being attacked here, and all we can do is strike, strike, strike. And so, hey, if you don't believe this, then maybe you don't believe the Bible, or maybe you're not even saved. We said some pretty terrible things back then because we were afraid. This is where the American culture said, ah, oh, come on, you know, now we've got to put some space between you and us. Now, the scientific community is somewhat predisposed to not respecting people of faith or faith claims, but the church then makes it worse by saying things like this. So here at Rancho, just to be clear, we absolutely welcome and respect all seven points of view. Just hold them with humility. But what we also want to see is we also want to see unbelievers, um, people who are yet to be Christians, yet to follow Jesus Christ, who believe in God and probably respect Jesus greatly, hold Jesus in high regard, we want to see them come here, come to the church without getting judged, without getting condemned, without holding positions on minor details, and to say, hey, listen, join a learning community and enjoy being a part of a community of people, a community of diverse people, you know, multiple ages, multiple ethnicities, multiple races, multiple points of view, and we are going to journey together in this quest for truth. And the goal here is not to pile up dogma. I'm right here, right here, right here on 100,000 things. The goal is not necessarily having a list of things we're right on. The goal is to walk a journey of discovery together. And that's a very healthy learning community where we don't only treat each other very well, but we treat people who are on a journey towards God and even towards following Jesus Christ, we get to embrace them in a very gracious and humble journey together. And 
you know, this isn't just conjecture about embracing the sciences or being open to the sciences. This is actually what God himself wants us to do. Because he makes it very clear in his word that I happen to trust that he wants us to explore nature to discover more of who he is. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says this. It's very clear to me. The heavens, right, the cosmos, declare the glory of God. The skies, and the word there is firmament, right? The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. In other words, nature itself speaks of who God is. And there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In other words, God says, my word speaks, but my creation speaks as well. And the voice of creation is loud. The voice of creation speaks very clearly who I am. And throughout the scripture, God invites us, hey, listen, study the oceans. The oceans speak of me. The rivers speak of me. The mountains speak of me. The trees speak of me. The animals speak of me. The earth speaks of me. The stars speak of me. The weather speaks of me. God says, explore it all. And so we can say to one another and we can say to the community, hey, listen, go after the sciences, right? Go after astronomy, biology, microbiology, geology, physics, astrophysics. Go after chemistry, biochemistry, genetics, anthropology, cosmology, paleontology, and psychology. Go after it all. And just absorb it and learn and discover not only about this world, but about the God who created this world. See, we live, in an, we live in an information age, and right now, at this very moment, over half of students that are in colleges are studying the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And so over half of our students in school right now are studying technology and science. And if the church is saying, no, you, you have to hold on to maybe some outmoded interpretations about the Bible, despite what you're, you're hearing uh, out there in, in, in the world, and discovering out there in the world, that rift just grows and grows, and we are pushing kids out the door, needlessly pushing kids out the door of God's church. Now, some might say, okay, listen, I get this. You know, nature displays the glory of God. You know, I, I, can, I can get that, but isn't the Bible, first and foremost, God's word? And I would say, of course. I affirm that the Bible is a foundational part of the Christian faith, and we believe that this Bible, this collection of 66 books, is inspired by God, and the authors wrote truth about who God is and about his relationship with us. Inspired by the Spirit to reveal who he is and the reality that he has good plans for us. That God is a heavenly Father who loves us and wants to bring us out of our darkness and out of our pain and out of our injustice, and he wants to lead us into a whole new reality of light and love and grace and compassion, and he sent his son Jesus to make it happen. And Jesus comes on the scene and as the fullness of divinity, and he preaches the kingdom of heaven, a new reality is coming to earth. He says, and the only law of that new kingdom is the law of love. And he showed us by serving one another and showing compassion and grace and forgiveness exactly the heart of God, and then proved that by laying his life down, dying for his cause of love and grace, but not only that, dying to pay the, the price of the failures of the world, put upon himself, died for those things to forgive us, and rose again from the dead to give us new and eternal life, but also to give all of creation new and eternal life. And all who believe upon Jesus Christ receive his love and receive this saving grace. And when we receive that, we become alive because we're no longer alone in this cosmos, we're no longer just floating around aimlessly, we're no longer just trying to live life for ourselves. We see the love of the Heavenly Father displayed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
He loves us that much. He forgave us. And now I'm free to know him and to enjoy him. And when we receive that and begin to live that saved life, what can we do now? We can share love with others, share grace with others, others, share compassion with others. And that's when everything changes. And the world is walking that journey right before our eyes. It is a wonderful journey. So yeah, we absolutely believe the Bible speaks specifically about who God is. In fact, for those of us who may have been raised in church, we might have memorized this passage, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, the entire counsel of God's word is inspired by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we believe the Bible speaks specifically about God, and so that is called specific revelation. Now, we also believe that God speaks generally through his creation. So I have the word of God here, and and let's call that special revelation, specific revelation. And then we have nature, and I just grabbed this rock, and it's heavier than I thought it was, and I've had to carry this around a lot today, uh, so I'm becoming super strong. Um, Let's call nature general revelation. So the Bible speaks specifically about God, and nature speaks generally about God. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you believe, or do we believe, that the Bible speaks precisely about God? What's the answer to that? Not a trick question, I'm gonna say yeah. Does nature speak precisely about God? I'm gonna say yeah, absolutely. So they both speak precisely about God. Is my interpretation of God's word always precise? What's the answer? No. Is our interpretation of nature always precise? No. We're flawed people. We don't have full you know, thinking and full information. And so sometimes our interpretation is wrong. And we have to have the humility to, humility to just admit that. Now, I have detailed for you how the church has gotten some interpretations wrong over the course of history, and we were 800 years late in the first one and 300 years late in the second one. We're a little late to this party, but you know, not quite as much. So there's a humility around our interpretation of God's word, and that gets refined as we go in this discovery together. But there has also been imprecision in our interpretation of nature. So do you remember when uh, you were in school, and some of you are in school, and you have those little diagrams about the atom, you have the uh, nucleus, and uh, then you have the electrons surrounding that, and the number of electrons determine the element and so forth, right? Remember that little, little model? Okay. That's being questioned right now because there's a brand new field of study called quantum mechanics. Fairly new, it was theorized a while ago, but now we're starting to study it. Have you heard of the Hadron Collider? The Hadron Collider, almost at the speed of light, collides two electrons together. It's cost $10 billion to build this thing. I, I can't for the life of me understand how this happened. Now, I've studied this. I'm a little kind of hobbyist astronomy guy and it is just wild science. So you collide two electrons together at near the speed of light, and you want to see what happens in this collision, subatomic particles. And and we're trying to find the Higgs boson particle, and it was found. And so these two electrons splinter apart, and then there's this quantum mechanic subatomic spins, spinny, like random spins that go all over the place. And then if you put those spins, and they always spin opposite directions, and if you put those spinny subatomic particles through a field that reverses the spin of one, instantaneously, the partner subatomic particle starts turning the other direction. Now you might think, well, first of all, I don't quite understand that. Neither do I. I uh, don't understand that. And second of all, well, so what? Well, here's the so what. Um, do you recall E equals MC squared, right? There's a cool TV show my daughter loves called that. Anyhow, um, it's the general theory of re- relativity. And that is tried and true and talks about how this universe is functioning the way it is. But that 
formula, the general theory of relativity, does not work in the subatomic world. Quantum mechanics and quantum information does not work in that because you have two particles separated that instantaneously communicate faster than the speed of light. That's not supposed to happen. So science is like, oh my gosh, this is blowing our minds. This whole new world of subatomic particles and quantum mechanics is changing everything. And science is loving it. You know who's not loving it so much? The Christian church. Because it's threatening to us. We should be as excited about quantum mechanics as the physicist. Why? Because the more we go big in our studies and the more we go small in our studies, whose face do we see? We see the face of God. We see the face of our creator. Now, these scientists are learning about stuff, and they're excited about stuff. Whether we're studying God's word or whether we're studying God's creation, we're not learning about stuff. We're learning about God. And that is extraordinarily exciting. And so perhaps our conclusion could be this. We should be humble and open and excited about the journey of discovery through thoughtful study of the Bible and through thoughtful study of nature. And I think if we can have that posture, whether we are interested in science or not, by the way, Rancho has a lot of scientists. There's a lot of great thinkers, whether science educators or um, uh, chemists, um, people who are in the medical field, um, they find a home at Rancho because, is what they tell me, it's a thoughtful environment that isn't condemning and judging. We're thoughtful and we're learning and we're discovering. And I think if we were to have that kind of humble, gracious, learning community, not only will we treat each other well, but this community will perhaps give church one more try. Close with, with this story. When I was very young, I think early 20s, I was brand new to the ministry. It was a long time ago. It was in that 80s realm, and uh, I was asked to go see somebody who was kind of a mutual friend of people I knew who was dying from AIDS. He had full-blown AIDS. Now, if you were around in the 80s, you know that the HIV virus was the scariest thing on the face of the earth. It, it, at the time, the thought was it could be this pandemic and wipe out the planet. I mean, it was scary. And there were some moral things in there, and the church did not behave really well. I call the 1980s the dark ages of the church. And I was, a, I was you know, in high school during that time and going through all these very you know, complicated thoughts about what the church was saying. And, and, and this particular gentleman was involved in, in a lifestyle that you know, was opened up to the, the HIV virus, and, and uh, so he had transitioned to full-blown AIDS, and he was a staunch atheist. He was a science educator, and I visited him, and I was scared to death because there was not yet a lot of understanding about HIV and how contagious it was and how you could pick it up. So I walk into this house, and I'm going, oh, what? Wash those hands. Wash. <laughs> Is there a mask? Is there... I mean, these are just natural fears. It was brand new, and everybody was afraid. And then you have the church saying ridiculous things about HIV, AIDS, you know, judgments of God and all kinds of just stupid stuff. And so I go into this, into this room, and it smelled as you would expect it to smell, um, as a man is just laying in waste and a single man at the time. Uh, Full-blown AIDS is a wreck, and um, there are just sores everywhere, particularly on the face. And, and he was uh, about 70 pounds, 75 pounds, just wasted away. And he had a sign on his wall above the bed, and it was this sign. Science is golden. Now, you know, my, my views as a young man, um, you know, weren't necessarily, necessarily as, as far along as they are now, and I've certainly got a long way to go uh, in my own discovery for sure. It'll be a lifelong journey, but 
I knew enough to be able to say to that gentleman that I agreed with this sign. Science is absolutely golden. And we got to talking about his work and his career, and he, he, he has an educator, and to really respect him. And, and, uh, and so we shared in a conversation about science and embracing science and embracing scientific discovery. And then we, we dabbled. He knew I was a pastor, so we went into matters of faith and went into matters of science. And yes, he was afraid, and he had a couple of questions and comments, and I had some comments with him. It was a very nice dialogue. I have no idea ultimately what the outcome was. Sometimes you have a conversation like that and it can lead to a measure of faith and sometimes it doesn't. He passed away shortly thereafter. But that to me was a microcosm, I think, of how the tenor of the church perhaps could work. That we say to the scientific community, by our demeanor and by our withholding of judgment and by our humility, we say, hey, listen, we're all in a journey of discovery together. And we can respect uh, the scientific community and all the scientific uh, uh, disciplines, and, and we can encourage our youth. I mean, imagine church encouraging our youth to study and explore all kinds of, of views, and we can guide them and direct them instead of keeping people in little bubbles, and then when they're 18 and go off to college, they get hit by a truck, right? Happens all the time. I think we can have a wonderful community of faith that is so confident in truth that we will encourage people, particularly young people, to explore and discover that truth. Because God makes it real clear, if you seek me with all your heart, you're gonna find me. The problem is sometimes the church doesn't want the church to seek. And that could be a problem. Let's have this humble learning community that's open to one another and open to people who are on that journey together. And I think we're gonna have people who fail, feel like they were marginalized or pushed aside from the church, give church one more try. We're gonna close in a final song, and I wanna ask you to, um, to just stay seated during the song. Uh, it's a beautiful song that talks about embracing creation itself uh, as, a, as really a key way to hear from God and in fact to know God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you speak. You are not hidden in some far off distant corner of the universe. You are a God who has chosen in your sovereign providence to reveal yourself and to make mankind in your image so that we have the capacity, the mental, the spiritual capacity to think thoughts of you and to explore who you are, to explore you through your word, but to explore you through nature itself. So God, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that we have the capacity to, to discover you. And I pray that we would do so with humility and grace, that we would seek and, and we may hold on to convictions, but we hold on to those, to those convictions with grace and humility not just so that we would treat one another more kindly, who have differing point of views, but that we would treat the world kindly and the scientific community kindly, who is really doing a wonderful job out there finding new discoveries and solutions for some of the world's greatest problems, that we would have a great relationship with the scientific community and a wide open door. There have been a few times in history where our discovery of you has motivated some of the greatest scientists who have ever lived motivated to discover the world around us because they're motivated to discover more of who you are. And when we study creation, we see that you are powerful. We see that you are sovereign. We see that you are orderly. We see that you are a volitional, personal designer. We see that you are intimately engaged in your creation. We even see your love, and we see that you're beautiful. In Christ's name, amen. 